Well, uh, welcome to What Divines Us. I'm Rabbi Abram Goodstein. Hi, everybody. I am Reverend Matthew Schultz. So glad that you're here at, uh, in our podcast. Uh, so, uh, Reverend uh, Matt Schultz. <laughs> Matthew Schultz? I, I flip-flop back and forth. <laughs> yeah, call, call me what you will. Okay. Uh, what, what are we talking about today? <laughs> we were laughing before that when we first started this podcast. We would have a very oh, thorough outline. Oh, we would, meet like twi- we would meet twice a month. The first the first one would be the, to the plan it. And then the second one would be to, to yeah, do it. Yeah, we had an outline <laughs> with subcategories and little side bits and pieces. And now, right before the podcast, we scratch down one, two, three, four, five kind of lines. Uh well, we're, we're busy. We're, yeah. we're full-time clergy. You know what I mean? I think mean? There, there's more life in the extemporaneous. You know, <laughs> yes, you don't you yeah. don't preach from a manuscript, do you? I do. Oh, do you? See, I I do it less and less. As Wait, do you, what do you you have anything in front of you when you when you preach? An outline only, and it's and the more I prepare, the smaller the outline is. Gosh, I really want to get there. I'm not there yet. It's I, it's scary yeah. sometimes. Yeah, oh, so can, scary. Yeah, because you think to yourself, what if I'm up there and I run out of worthwhile things to say and honestly it's happened and then we leave church five minutes early and people are fine with that well, it, better I, than padding I have it like um, a ton of wordplay and that's the thing and yeah. so like i for me to deliver the wordplay well right i, I kind of have to read it you and there's a I mean? book in seminary that we read called um oh boy i forgot the title but it's something along the lines of writing for the for the word to be spoken as opposed to writing for the word to be read. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And if your audience different. is hearing it, it's a whole different writing style. And, yeah, it is. And the wordsmithing like that and the wordplay, I try to leave to the written word. Yeah. And then the other stuff in sermons, I do more. Uh, I, I leave the space I just, for it. I love I love vocal wordplay. I just yeah. I love hearing it and I love yeah. delivering it. Same. But it's more, it requires more of a, I guess, a structured page to yeah. sort of make sure I get it right. Well, you're also in the same deal as I am wherein we are almost the only sermon giver in our community, yeah. right? Yeah. And so yeah. it's good that sometimes I do it with a lot written out and the uh-huh. word play and the real careful attention given to each sentence. And other times it's real loosey goosey. Yeah. And so that, that way there's some variety out there too. I also write jokes into my sermon. I would say about 75% of them don't land. You know, <laughs> about 25% right. do. Yeah. How, how do your jokes go? Depends on the joke. Sometimes yeah. it's a dad joke that I know is designed to get groaned at, right? <laughs> nice. Uh, sometimes I'm real happy with them. A lot of my jokes are not written in. They occur to me in the moment and I fly with it. And those are then those if those, the best. Yeah. those are either the best or they fail so hard that the failure becomes funny and people uh, laugh at that. Wow. And so you can kind of wow. recoup you some of your losses. Yeah. yeah. There was yeah. once that I did real careful wordplay and I wrote out more than usual because it was the Sunday after Prince had died. Oh, okay. And I snuck in a whole bunch of references to Prince songs. Got it. And I was like, well, I need to make sure I get these just right because I'm quoting lyrics, even though I didn't say I was quoting lyrics. I just kind of worked them into the sermon. And then at the end, I asked people, did anyone catch those? And a bunch of people did. So that was a fun little. But it was a game I was playing with myself. You know, like no one else was was in on the joke. But that's how you become a great (laughs) sermon writer. You play these games and you get better at it. Yeah. Well, you know, you're an older clergy than I am. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that you got more experience than I do. So I look forward to being, you know, <laughs> to being like you one day and not having to write too much out and just delivering it. Like it's that. a fungal, and it, it's all about the the research ahead of time. Now, in our tradition, we call that exegesis. Is that yeah. a word you use also? I mean, I, I think everything that I do is constantly exegesis. So I just yeah. don't say the word anymore. There you go. <laughs> and and it's only in like conversations like this you would ever use it. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. otherwise it's just research and. 
to to speak more extemporaneously, I'd have to do probably twice as much research. I do tons of research. Yeah. I, actually, I call it the research of the, the clipboard phase, uh, where often I'll, because just my eyes can't handle a screen too long, okay. I'll actually like I'll print out my research and then I'll oh, uh, I put it on a clipboard and then I'll smart. write all over it. And that's yeah. step one of me writing a sermon. Okay. I call it my crockpot phase. Oh, nice. We have such different names. Early for the same on, phase. <laughs> you know, like sometimes Sunday afternoon. Uh huh. Right after you start I start that soon? Depends. Yeah. It depends on what I I'm start doing. on Tuesday. Um, but as early as I can in the week, I read and I read and I read and I read. Yeah. And I'll take some notes um, or I'll copy and paste. If I'm reading online, I'll copy and paste paragraphs. And then I just step away and it's all cooking in the crock pot. Yeah. Yeah. You know? oh, it's, and it's so always cooking. then yeah. by Thursday, I'm like, yeah, I got this. And I put it all down. And then this drives Elizabeth a little bit crazy. Then I'm doing revision Sunday morning. And I'm so our service starts at 11. I'm still revising at 11. Yeah, I do and, that, too. But I mean, I, I have it. I like I, I I do the clipboard phase on on Tuesday, yeah. which is like my which is like my Monday essentially because uh-huh. I take Mondays off. Uh, and then on by Wednesday morning, I have it all kind of like written down. It's got a shape. Shape yeah. I have the shape, and then Thursday and Friday and Friday are like that. I yeah. I, I whittle it down even further. What time is your service uh, then six, on Saturday? So it's at six p.m. on Friday. On Friday, I'm sorry. Yeah, on Friday. Shoot. And so on Friday morning, I'm I'm working on it, working yeah. on it. Uh, and then Friday evening, I might see a couple things I want to change, and I just yeah. use a pen. At that point, I'm using a pen. Yes. So like, yeah, during know? the service. Yeah, yeah. Because again, yeah. Ours, I think like yours, our sermon is toward the end of the service. Yeah, yeah. So we have a wonderful volunteer named Tammy Lindemuth, and she does the kids' sermons every Sunday. Oh, cool. She will often come out with these gems that are just brilliant. And I'm like, well, I've got to make reference to that yeah. in the, yeah. the regular sermon. And then yeah. that creates some nice continuity, but also shows her the respect of being a co-leader of the church, you know, so it's, sure. uh, it's, it's, so I'm always scratching things out throughout the whole service based on log or, <laughs> or maybe one of the hymns has a lyric that hadn't really popped out to me before, but I'm like, oh, that lyric is perfect for this one part. So I'll scratch that in there. And what's, what's really funny is, is there's a little bit of tension with the writing because like, you know, in, in Orthodox Judaism, you don't write on Shabbat. You don't. Whoa, really? Yeah. Of course. You know, it's, yeah. It's, it's oh, work, work. So to have like a pin up there on the Bima, which is what we call our stage, we right, call it Bima, right. you know, and have a, me having a pin on the podium, that'd be like perfect for my style, like to have a pin there and be, you know, using it. Yeah, and yeah. But I don't because like there's this whole I- ideal, if you will. That you might set people. Yeah, you don't write on Shabbat. Yeah. So why would you have like a pin or a pencil as a symbol that you utilize? Yeah, so. Uh, so, so that's doubly interesting because theoretically the prohibition on writing is in keeping with no work done on right, it, right? right? And yet, there you are doing your work. I mean, as a rabbi, I, I, I it's like the opposite for me. Like I right. work hard on on the day where the, the yeah. prohibition. So of just not as working. they're making an allowance to say, well, you're doing your rabbinical work. Would that be the right? I guess so. Adjectival yeah. Sounds good to me. Form. Yeah, yeah. You're doing your rabbinical work by preaching. Wouldn't there be a case to be made that you're doing your rabbinical work by writing in that moment? I think there is a case you made by that, yeah. and uh, I, the problem—well, not the problem—but you have to recognize that like there's not a lot of choices for Jews here in Alaska, and so sure. our goal is that our community, while it's officially reformed, uh, to have sort of like a big tent 
mentality. Gotcha. So I want all Jews of all walks of life to feel comfortable in our community. Yeah. So I try to actually practice some of the. I mean, I don't. I, of course, I write on Shabbat, but mm-hmm. I don't. But I'm not visible. Not necessarily up in front. Yeah. So if you it. were up front leading and something occurred to you that you really thought it was important to remember yeah. for during the service, yeah. would you write that down or try to be real sneaky about it or just try to commit it to memory? I think I usually I just try to connect to memory. I'm like, you okay. know, the writing is done. The writing phase is done. Gotcha. Just, just let it go and uh, try to remember, remember it. And, and if it's that good, write it down later. And then if you want to reuse the sermon some other time, which is the whole other conversation we should be having about whether you reuse sermons or not. I have not yet. Yeah, I <laughs> but, do. I, uh, not always, but I, I do. Well, let me rephrase it. I have not yet in-house, right? But... Over the course of Lent, I was in a rotation with other Presbyterian ministers in the Anchorage uh, Bowl. So each of us got to reuse one sermon uh, three times yeah. in a row. It was great. Oh, it was yeah. so good. Big or four times for your row. buck right there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then also I do the Pioneer Home Worship Service once a month. And I'll frequently take big portions of that and yes. use it on a Sunday yes. morning. Or vice versa. You, know, you should. It's, you it's should, a different group of you people. You should definitely so. do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I, we, this was not part of the plan. There you go, as <laughs> if to go. illustrate the point. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, let's get started on what we had what we had planned out. I would love to hear your thoughts because it was your idea. I'm not sure I fully understand what I'm talking about, which is the story of my life. Story well, of your yeah. life, Matt. You mentioned you wanted to talk about institutional trust. Yeah, what is that? Institutional trust. You, you, you tell me. Oh, you right, it up. right. That's right. I brought it up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like uh, our religions are these really big institutions, yeah. especially if you're part of a denomination uh-huh. um, or a movement. Yeah. So we call it a reform movement. Uh, and I think we these institutions are quite bureaucratic. Sure. And they don't really take. There's. It's more than just one person leading it. And because of that, it, it can. You try to garner what I would call trust in these institutions so that people believe in you. Yeah. Now, a lot of times, that trust is just given without having to work for it. Right, right. Uh, but I disagree. I think we should work for it. We should always be working for it. We should always be saying, uh, you, you um, l- l- allow me to earn your trust. Right. L- give me opportunities to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think people I think people have inherent what I call like BS meters. Yes. You know what I mean? I think people inherently understand when they experience something inauthentic. Whether right. they can describe it or not is is uh, is is really up to each person. But I, I believe it's there, and so I think when a when a community says, uh, you know, let, let us earn your trust, uh, they're respected in that way. Right. But there's a lot of decisions out there that say you should trust us, no matter yeah. what we say. Yeah. And boy, I don't want to. I'm jumping right to a, a tragedy. But when I consider all the clergy sex abuse yes. crimes that yes. are out there, particularly um, inflicted upon children, right? It's because parents probably, in that case, presumed a trustworthiness that was absolutely. In, in, they absolutely yeah. did. Yeah. They assumed that... I'm like, know, oh, that's the collegiate person. They're yeah, safe. They're we'll just leave our kids with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, it's happened in Catholicism, like in a big way, mm-hmm. but that affects clergy whole world around, right? It's not just like, Catholicism. Like, it's been right, multiple places. Right. Yeah. And I'm so careful. Like, you know, when there is a minor in my office, my door stays open. Oh, absolutely. You know? With um, me, pretty much anybody, because also in seminary, we were taught to do that anytime, as a man, anytime a woman is in my office. Sure. But that was, even that was kind of old school because sexuality is not based on gender. Right. right? And right. so yeah. the, the, the power dynamics, say what you will about all of them, it's much safer to just say, Everybody has that level of openness and protection. 
the only problem then comes when the person says, like, I, I want privacy because I need to share something personal. And then they close the door. I'm like, well, actually, I have to have it open. But then they don't feel like they can share. There's a whole, like, song and dance. I, I close the door mm-hmm. on, in those situations because, once again, I, I, I'm thrilled. I'm like, yeah. okay, you trust me. You trust this place. Trust me enough right. to, to be vulnerable. Right. Uh, and I want, I, I want to help you be vulnerable. And in those cases, that's why there's the window in the door. And other people know that I'm in here with a, yes. with a person. Yeah. And so there's accountability as best we can. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, you also have the preschool in your building. We do. Yeah. And we have a school that, that uses space on the other side. But even just for in-house things, we have a very thorough child protection policy Absolutely. that we're required to follow. Yeah. Um, that's local and also denominational. Yeah. I mean, we definitely, I mean, we, we follow some pretty intense regulations. Yeah. So we, of course we have there we have that too, but but once again you can follow all the test regulations you want, and you can still abuse the trust of your of your parents in a right. preschool, yeah. which happens sometimes. Anyways, you know what I mean. So like it's yeah. more than just following regulations; it's it's also good communication, which is a sign which is a sign of trying to say that you're trustworthy, right? Right. Trying to accomplish, right. you know, and and but you know, and the reason why I bring this all up is just, I'm thinking about the Supreme Court a lot, Matt, and how like sure, my trust, of course, yeah, my trust institution is being eroded. Like all the time, uh-huh. and uh, and I'm frustrated. And the problem with like with this is that like and like as many people experience religion is that there's nothing that really that I can do, and that's part of where the sort of the anxiety and the frustration comes from is that I now have this misplaced trust to institution that I grew up thinking was great. Yeah, and I don't know where where that goes. Where that you know, and there's there's some anger there. I don't know where that goes. Yeah, and I feel like people experience that not just towards the Supreme Court, but to tons of institutions, um, and they have yeah. a, a, a level of anger that maybe that they don't necessarily they can't really name, but but, but it's there. Yeah, yeah, I forget who said it. One of the the founding fathers phrased it somewhere along the lines of uh, "government derives its authority from the consent of the governed." Yes. Right. And and as we see things like Clarence Thomas, you know, taking all these giant gifts, we're like, I, I no longer give my consent to to let you have authority. But then it's terrifying, right? Because we're like, well, I'm not an anarchist. I I feel like we need a government. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but not but then, one but that then we, we can't can, trust. But the problem too is that we we can go to to our our local court system. You know, and they can mm-hmm. tell us, yes, we're, you know, we're the judicial system here, the branch of the government. We do important work. You know, you should trust us. I'm like, well, how can I trust you when one of your top guys yeah. is doing all these untrustworthy things, right? It comes down the line all the way yeah. to the local level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how dangerous it is when you abuse when you abuse trust. Well, Senator Murkowski introduced some sort of accountability bill. I haven't looked at it, so I don't know exactly what it says. But I feel like part is that's, she on the judicial c- committee? I don't recall. Oh, okay. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But um, uh, all that to say, if there were some sort of accountability, I feel like then people would feel much better about it. But at this point, it kind of feels like a lot of the stuff with Trump, which is, well, there could be all these giant accusations and what looks from the outside to be a no-brainer proof like yeah of course these things took place yeah and then there's not any sort of repercussions yeah and so how do you have trust in a system where someone is just flagrantly breaking the law and nothing happens and not only that but like like a household name right a household figure yeah like someone like trump is breaking the law in front of all of our eyes yeah, and we're not seeing any kind of repercussions. Right, right. So how how can there be trust in that? Similarly, if if I started stealing money from the church, right, and then got caught, and then people are like, "Well, he broke the rules," but oh well, 
like no one would trust me the next time I tried to raise funds. That happens though. I've it heard does. story after yeah. story about that. Yeah. Well, then do they trust him afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's this is the problem, right? A lot of times trust is given without being earned. And when that's and when that's even after it's broken that way though, that's that's kind of crazy too. And think about how sexist that gets too, right? Like, you yeah. know, uh, women and men experience this completely differently. Sure, sure. And uh, and a lot of times men get a free pass more than women do when trust is broken. Hmm. Well, now you're just saying sad things. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. <laughs> I often feel like it's it's our job to navigate emotions. Yeah, yeah, uh, with ourselves and with our, you know our congregants <laughs> uh, and our community that we have them. And although and there big. are days, I wish my job didn't do that. <laughs> I just wish once in a while, like every couple of weeks, you could have just a shallow day where like, oh, my only job today was to uh, I just had to go in and rearrange my desk and it didn't have any emotional. I, toll. I love those days. Man. <laughs> it's nice. It I doesn't happen them, much. But they're but, very yeah, rare. They are. And like you can't ignore those emotions either. Right. I mean, we yeah. often we and I say we, I mean, just people experience mm-hmm. big emotions and sometimes it can be super hard to navigate what they are or name them or understand them. And when you can't, those emotions, they're there. You can't ignore them. Yeah. They come out at one point or another. Um, and mm-hmm. so I, I happen to believe that when you erode uh, trust in institutions that you used to love, that big emotions come out from that. Yeah. And they're hard to name. They're hard mm-hmm. to understand. Uh, and they come out in weird ways or, or they're, those same people are triggered by very different things. Maybe mm-hmm. people who they love trigger them, even yeah. though they're not angry at that person. They're actually angry at something else, but they can't navigate it and they can't name it. Right. I often believe it's our job to help them do that. And those institutions like government or church or other things do provide a sense of uh, protection. You know, that having trust in that thing makes you yeah. feel like, all right, I'm safe in these regards, right? And when that starts to shake, then you're feeling like, I'm exposed and scared <gasps> well, always. And that panic, yeah, it expresses. A great, a great example is food stamps here in Alaska. Right. right. We're about three months behind on where we're supposed to be in food stamps, which yeah. means there's literally people starving right. who shouldn't be. Because right. the government was just not getting the job done. Right. Yeah. They, who cl- they said they would. They claimed they mm-hmm. would. They said you've You've, you know, you, you deserve food stamps. Yeah. You know, you're part of that economic level. And, uh, but we're not going to give them to you because we don't have, we just yeah. aren't prepared to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, talk about eroding trust. Yeah. You know, and that's the most vulnerable population here in Alaska aren't receiving the thing they need for them to, to remain emotionally healthy and physically healthy for that matter. So, you know, we've talked about broken trust yeah. a bit. And, you know, for cause, the government didn't do the food stamps or Clarence Thomas did accept those gifts or clergy people did commit abuse. Mm-hmm. That's trust that was given and then broken afterwards. Yeah. I also see something on social media a lot and in personal conversations um, where that trust is rescinded by the giver because of disagreement on policy. Yeah. So that's a fancy, wordy way to say for example, if someone says, you know, being gay is a sin, and I say, no, it's not, and they're like, their response would be, oh, and you call yourself a pastor? So it's like, it's not a broken trust in that I did something wrong. It's mm-hmm. a broken trust in that they believe that I believe something wrong. Yeah. And yeah. suddenly, and beforehand, they were in a position where they're like, oh, let's ask the pastor, right? Yeah. Let's ask the, the guy who went to school for this and is ordained and has all this, you know, experience in ministry. Let's ask him because he's trustworthy. And then I disagree and they say, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> and they then they start like, well, where did you go to school? That must be bad. What's your denomination? That must be bad. And they start intentionally trying to undercut 
credibility so that they can feel like, well, my trust is in something bigger than that. Yeah. And that's a weird thing, too. Because uh, then what they've been really trusting all along is their own opinion. Because when I disagreed with it, I was pushed out so that they could maintain their hold on what they truly believed in all along, their own belief. Right, right. I mean, we, I mean, we do that. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm kind of like, I don't want to. We like crack open skulls sometimes in that way, right? You know what I mean? It's a violent what? metaphor, but like, but like sometimes people are like, "This is what I believe my whole life," and you have to say, "What you believe yeah. is not is hateful." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I think it's time maybe you you focused on something that was more positive. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you, when someone hears it the first time, they are not going to like you. Yeah. <laughs> true. True. Uh, and 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 maybe and and maybe. Uh, they don't like you for the rest of their lives, you know. Uh-huh. And but maybe they don't like you, and they reform their ways a little bit. Um, yeah. You don't know, but I, I feel like it's necessary to hold to hold on to like your your statement of like what you can't dictate what you do through hate. Yes, uh, yeah. and us Jews, we experience that a lot. Sure, people hate us. They have they have hate in their heart, mm-hmm. and they're directed at us. And, uh, you know, I don't I hate, I hate to say that we've gotten good at being hated, but, but we've learned how, <laughs> yeah, right, we, we've right. learned how to carry on. We, we've learned how, and in some ways I, I've learned how to understand why those people hate and I've come to sort of, let me fine tune that. You're yeah. not saying you've come to understand why they directed at you, no, but more, yeah. more why they have hatred within them in yeah. the first place. Right, okay, thank right. you. Okay. And part of that reason, Matt, is because they, their institutions that they used to love, they don't trust anymore, hmm. you know? And, and so that's, that's one of many components, yeah. but there is a, but you know, a person that hates is, is a person that's also suffering. Well said. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can't. I, I got nothing to add to that. That's beautifully said. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Are we moving to our next thing? <laughs> um, well, kind of a segue then statement from that. One of the things that sets people off into hatred or into saying, I no longer trust you, is when you um, speak against something that they hold sacred. Yeah. You yeah. know, and one of the, the common phrases in response when something changes or when something that is venerated starts to be treated as if it is open to question they say is nothing sacred <laughs> right you've <laughs> heard that is sacred. nothing sacred <laughs> yes yes and often that's the accusation yeah yeah <laughs> how dare you is nothing sacred <laughs> right. and my personal heresy i think i'm not sure if this is heretical or not but my opinion is the answer to that question is no nothing is sacred nothing is you're making nothing this is sacred i'm taking this pastor stance. matt schultz is making this stance folks nothing aside from god uh-oh. And oh, so already an addendum that you're nothing <laughs> Well, God's always an exception. Nothing except everything is sacred. <laughs> so the the definition of sacred being uh, kind of two-parter. In some senses, it means something or some place or a person that are set apart. Yes. Right? Yes. So it's, it's, it's preserved for just one purpose. So you might think of like a, a certain holy area of a temple that's only for one person to do one particular task. You're referring to the the Holy of Holies in the temple. Yeah, Yeah. or in a lot of um, high church traditions within Christianity, like you might have the Lord's Cup where you pour the wine What is high church? That's where marijuana is legal. 
No, no. No, I'm joking. Like high fantasy. You know, no, high church kind of like, refers to something that would have a more formalized and ornate liturgy and process of uh, going through their their set service, oh, gosh, uh, often with a lot of. Um, you know, the, the smells and bells, as I say, uh, they the burn the incense. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I don't want to, you know, poo-poo their traditions. It's just not my deal. Yeah. But a lot of them would have things such as the cups or the robes. Uh-huh. Um, the, I get it. The, 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 a lot the, of pageantry. Yeah. Pageantry. Yeah. And the physical items of that pageantry would be considered holy or yeah. sacred. Yes, yes. Um, the church building itself or the temple itself. And even so far as holy land. And... Um, in my opinion, if you were to say that God is present in Jerusalem to a higher extent, it's a holy land, that's God's joint, <laughs> then... The high church and God's joint, yeah. where do you go with this? <laughs> As it says in Isaiah 420. <laughs> oh my goodness. Sorry. No, I, if you say that God is more present there, then you are by extrapolation saying God is less present elsewhere. It's called an axis mundi, by the way. Tell me more. I don't know this phrase. Axis mundi? I love it. Oh, it's uh, it literally is a place where you can experience God in a stronger way. Okay. An axis mundi. So, nice. for example, if in Judaism, the Western Wall yeah. would be considered an axis mundi. Okay, great. And I think you'll find a similar concept all over the place, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, or spiritual, not religious uh, people. You know, I think a lot of people have said things like that. And if you ask a lot of people about Sedona, Arizona... Sedona, Arizona. It's they'll say something along the lines of, "Oh, the veil is thin there." What is what? It's just a place that's really cool, and apparently there's like great spiritual energy, or oh, sh- like the Earth's chakras are aligned there. You're really selling there's, it. I want to go there now. It's Sedona, it's physically Arizona. beautiful, yeah, and and that's one of the dangers. That's why. Uh, that's why I don't uh-oh. dig it. That's why I don't I'm, dig I'm, it. I'm uh, I'm already committing some Matt heresy here. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a great, it sounds like a sacred place to Sedona, Arizona. Man. But it's not, because if it were sacred, that would mean God is more present there than in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which, no offense, my Scrantonites, but she ugly. <laughs> isn't that the, isn't that where, uh, what? The Dundee Mifflin Paper yes, Company. Yes, that's right. That's right. I yeah. will not sing the theme song lyrics that I personally wrote and sang out loud every week that oh show is on. Yeah, there's that groan. There's <laughs> that dad groan you're looking for. But here's the deal. If God is more present there, then God is less present elsewhere. I reject is that, is that. I reject that, that. Is that how God works? Yeah. If God is more present in in a place, then then what else would that mean? Interesting. Because uh, if you're saying, well, the God energy in uh, Sedona is at a 10, but here in Anchorage, it's only at a five. That's not true. And what, the reason I bristled when you said... Do you have like some kind of like like a, a god Geiger counter, you know? Yeah. And then goes off like crazy. Well, that's exactly right. That's, the con- that's what I think the concept of a holy place brings up. Okay. Like, is God really here more? What makes this holy besides the fact that we experience it more? And do we experience it more because God is actually more present here, because it's actually more holy? Or do our traditions tell us to? And does oh. our presupposition that beauty equals holy make us think that? Because yes. if you're going to say yes. that God is more present in a beautiful place, boy, I feel God in the mountains. I feel God's presence at the sunset. No one uh, is ever saying something like, I went there. down in the sewer system yesterday and felt God's presence. But God is every bit as present in the sewer as God is in the sanctuary. Wow. That's, that's a statement right there. There you go. Boom. So that's why I reject the notion of Holy Land. 
I reject the notion of holy space. I reject the notion of holy people. Oh my I reject the notion of holy items. I think the cup of Christ, the Holy Grail, if we were to find it, it's just it's just probably made out of wood, right? And it's it's just wood. It will not give you eternal life if you drink from it. That's not what Indiana Jones says. There's a lot Indiana Jones says that's wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Matt Byrne right there. Dang, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this day knowing that. For example, the entire movie Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> we don't, just not, one mistake. I don't count one. that as Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> Yeah. So again, that's my heresy. I'll bet you most Christians think I am way off base and I'm wrong. And, you know, so maybe I am. But I have not yet seen an explanation of holiness that is anything more than tradition or superstition or attuning ourselves to respond in certain ways to certain external stimuli that are not from God, but from our own understanding of what it means to harmonize a space, right? Ooh. You walk into like a giant cathedral with the huge yes, sweeping ceilings. Yes. It sure feels holy, but that's because the architects were masters of using space and acoustics. It's not because God is sitting in there going, hey, make the ceiling higher. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I hope that's the case. Yeah. God's going in there. And God's got that accent of an old-timey gangster. Yeah, yeah. Hey, fellas, I got an idea. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a surprise? That's the way God sounds like. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my bugaboo. I want to run you through the ringer on this one, man. Let's, Good. Let's start with a few questions. Sure. First of all, I, so I, I'm noticing that you're sort of describing what would be called an eminent God, right? A God that's all ar- that's that's all around. Omnipresent. Yeah. And there's something called a transcendent God, right? That's mm-hmm. the God that's above us, essentially. Okay. So I, I hear you describing an eminent God. Does that, does that seem to be... I would say both and. Oh, both and. Yeah. Are we like an improv class right now? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And also, God has to go pick up his dry cleaning. Scene. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, there's this concept of Judaism uh, called Sim Tzum. I don't know if you've probably not familiar with that. Nope. Okay. So Sim Tzum is this idea that like God is so powerful and so just intense that God had to create literally a godless space within God cool. for the universe to fit into. Nice. It gives okay. you how fathomable. Yeah, yeah. And then, but bits of God, it, like like referred to as often as vessels, mm-hmm. are scattered throughout the universe. You described this to me in one of our first podcasts, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah I'm remembering yeah. this now. Yeah. And so, part of our job as just you know not you know humans, whatever flawed humans, is to go and try collect these metaphorical vessels, right, right. Uh, which are godly mm-hmm. and thus sacred. Yeah. But how we go about doing that isn't literally trying to find like old pottery. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's 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 good works. Mm-hmm. It's doing good works. And that's and that's what sort of collects those. In, in Hebrew we say mitzvah, which means commandment. Right. Um, and that's sort of so how would how does that like I feel like I think what that sounds like to me is a beautiful metaphor. Yeah. But I don't think it's attempting to describe an actual function of the universe, right? Because to say yeah, but neither is this saying, omnipresent God left accidental bits and pieces behind. Like well, did he just dust off a well, little bit of God go, particles? Probably yeah. just dust off the God. It wasn't accidental. Uh, it's very intentional. Uh, but but it was the only way God could exist mm-hmm. alongside humanity. Otherwise, God would obliterate everything mm-hmm. around, you know, everything around. That's sort of, that's one concept. But here's the thing about Judaism. We have, like, so many theologies. Yeah. Uh, and we're all over the place on this one. And we have to be, uh, really because of the Holocaust, right? Like, mm-hmm. how can we believe in a God that that would 
allow this to happen. Murder six million Jews. Right. Uh, and so, uh, but and while that is awful, and it makes it really hard to believe in like an, uh, the three omnis, right? Omniscient. Mm-hmm. Omniscient. Yep. Which is all knowing. Mm-hmm. Omnibenevolent, which is all good. Mm-hmm. Omnipotent, which is all powerful, right? Right. Those three omnis. Essentially, inf- those are, I mean, these come from Greek influence of our theology. Uh-huh. Uh, they, uh, we, us Jews, we just can't, we can't vibe with that anymore. Well, neither can any thinking Christian. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and a lot of Christians will will encounter this problem, which in our tradition we call theodicy. Yeah. Uh, but it's the same thing you described. Yeah. yeah. And encounter it and kind of walk away. Like they're like, well, that's a brick wall I can't get around, so they're they're done. Um, no one has the answer, but how? Right. Yeah. Right. But like, but so we we developed just an, a massive amount of different theologies. Yeah. And I encourage all of my congregants and mostly my religious school kids to go on their own journey and decide right. what God looks like for them personally. Interestingly, self-limitation in the incarnation as Jesus Christ is part of our understanding of how to overcome that problem of theodicy within Christianity, yeah. that is. And so that self-limitation of what you refer to as simsum? Is that what you said? Simsum. Okay. I, <laughs> you said that. I'm sure I got it wrong, but... <laughs> I'll just correct you every time. It's like in just Ted Lasso, the goalie's name you. was Zorro. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing wrong here, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we'll talk more about Ted Lasso later, because the last two episodes have been I've, perfect. I have not seen the new season yet. Oh. I'm working on through season two again. Sorry. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that. So I don't want to give anything away. Episode. Yeah. Up to this point, the season's been okay, but the last two episodes have been absolutely transcendently good. Okay. So yeah, Looking good forward stuff. to it. But in terms of places in the universe where God is less present, I I just don't see it. Yeah. I I I think the reason that we experience that is more about our ability to perceive things at times. Sure. But that doesn't mean it's less the case. And I could be wrong. I, I'm not trying to say, like, I, I definitely have the answer here. I just, I, I, I've not yet heard an explanation of it that makes me feel like it, it covers omnipresence. Well, I got, I got two more, two more yeah. to throw at you. All right. Um, there's a guy named Martin Buber. Yeah. He's writing yeah. I and Thou. Right, and so uh, Martin Buber says you can have an I and it relationship and an I and thou relationship. Okay. Uh, and the I and it is kind of like your mundane relationship with things and people. Mm-hmm. But I thou is like a beautiful relationship, and within that relationship is where God is. Right. Right. So God's the connection we have with other people mm-hmm. when they're really positive and really good. Yeah. So in that way, God isn't like. Um, transcendent, right? God isn't eminent. God isn't either of those things. God is connection. Yeah. And it's sort of a whole different way to think about that. And that is where sacredness would come in there. Mm-hmm. Our, I would say our relationship, Matt, would be an either relationship. So literally us conversing, us chatting is the sacred. Interesting. Uh, but but the, but there's limitations, right? So, mm-hmm. like, you know, Martin Buber says not every either relationship happens all the time, right? You and I could be talking about how much we like coffee. Right. And maybe a little more of a boring conversation. And maybe mm-hmm. that's not an I-thou. Maybe that's an I-it. Right? So yeah. there's levels. And you're describing how you don't like levels. You, you don't like how God can be in one place, a.k.a. a cathedral, but not another place like a sewer. I, I, it's not that I dislike levels in general, <laughs> you know, I, 
I, I sit on bleachers. So they have levels. Uh, <laughs> they certainly do. And they're not comfortable. Any level's not comfortable. Right. It's like Kramer's apartment. It's all levels. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, I'm not opposed to us experiencing God's presence in different levels. But I think that's different than God's actual presence being present at different levels. <laughs> so in our conversation about coffee... God's still present there. Uh-huh. It's just you and I are less aware of it. Ah, okay. And in a moment when you or I are speaking to someone about the nature of their spirit, well, it's it's obviously there, right? It, we're, we're right there in the moment. Or if we're simply counseling someone through a hard time, even if it's not overtly about God, if it's just a moment of real grace. Um, yeah, sure. We're highly aware that God is present in this moment. But... When I was changing my kids' diapers, God was there, too. I do that all the time. Right. And God is there when you're doing it. I don't think so. <laughs> so it's not like... Yeah. Yeah. I got one more for you. Sure. Uh, so there's, there's a guy named Spinoza. You've heard of Spinoza? Yes. Bit of a Jewish bad boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, he lived in Amsterdam and around right before the, uh, the Renaissance, so like, what, 1600, something like that? And uh, well. he got excommunicated... Uh, which was a death sentence if you were Jewish back then. Sure. Uh, but he survived. I didn't know Judaism had excommunication. I, it really doesn't. But it, okay. Uh, not, not <laughs> Spinoza much. invented it. It's, but yeah, yeah they, they hate him so much they figured out how to excommunicate Spinoza. Uh, well, they, you could, yeah, I mean, you could get, I mean, back, so essentially back then Judaism uh, was, uh, you're in your own incredibly siloed community. Right? Okay. And so you could only exist within that community if you wanted to be Jewish. If you left, you couldn't be Jewish anymore. Wow. That's how intense it was. Yeah. Uh, that's the kind of Jewish experience for hundreds of years, Matt. Mm. If you got moved to another town due to circumstances beyond your control, what did you do? You convert to not being Jewish. Oh, man. Yeah. That's hard. Judaism really required you to be in a really, in a really tight community. You couldn't join whatever community was there in if that there new town? there was one, oh, you okay. could. Okay. But no guarantee. You're, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You just wouldn't do it. Hmm. Anyway, so, but Spinoza was able, was able to survive excommunication because he essentially was one of the grandfathers of the, of the Enlightenment, just in general, not just of Judaism, yeah. uh, and, which was really awesome. And he, his day job was, I think he worked on, he, he made glasses. Right? No way. That's like his day job. Okay. Right? So he's this brilliant guy yeah. that didn't, that like had like a day job huh. that had nothing to do with being so smart. Yeah. Anyways, he, he, he came in and said that really what God is is capital in nature. Right, that mm-hmm. like we like God. God isn't anything but but nature. Right, uh, and the way that we experience God is the same as feeling the wind on our faces. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's there's no plan. There's no there's no big thing going on other than what we see and experience in our own universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that was Spinoza's belief system, which I found to be very powerful to yeah. think of it that way. You know, it's it's kind of thinking about God being like the clockmaker. And, and and walking right. away, but but really in this one it's the clock, and it's called pantheism. Sure. Uh, and uh, and so that's so I I mean honestly so I mean I wonder where where you where you're at with that one because like with pantheism essentially it kind of agrees with you like yep. God is everywhere because God is how we experience our environment. Right, and I'm, I'm I don't believe I am a pantheist in saying like God is this pen, you know, or God is that block of wood over there, but I do believe that God is equally present throughout the whole universe. And so um, that omnipresence would say that, yeah, God is in nature. And definitely we experience God in nature. We hear people say that all the time. But again, let's hear the not so subtle messages we say when we say God is in nature. 
two things to keep in mind. Yeah. People will always say, oh, I went to Niagara Falls, and boy, the power and the thunder of the falls. Yeah. I really felt God's presence. Really or that there. sunset or the, the yeah. Alaskan Beautiful. vistas oh. we're always seeing here, right? How often when people say it was socked in foggy all day long, and boy, I really felt God in that fog where I had oh. zero visibility. First of all, I love fog. So but you I don't really hear experience. that much, right? <laughs> you know, in terms of people's common experience, they talk about beauty and grandeur. Yeah, yeah. But God is present in the cockroach. Also, just really? if you see the soaring eagle and Isaiah gets into it, it's like, we'll soar on eagle's wings because it's poetically, you know, Beautiful. it really, it, I love yeah, it. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a great image, uh. but sorry, slugs. Well, God didn't like you. So he made you ugly where we are inherently when we say God is in nature, we often are truly saying God is in the beautiful parts of nature that didn't kill me yet. You know, I love, no I love one is saying parts. I saw uh, I saw a whole swarm of killer bees, and I really oh. felt God's presence. I, you know, I tell you what, if you, you felt bar- fear. if you barely survived that swarm of bees, you definitely felt God's presence. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I but mean? you're not saying God was in the bees; you're saying <laughs> God was in the surviving. Yeah. Although the Book of Job, I gotta give credit, God was in the whirlwind that killed Job's kids, and God was in the whirlwind that answered him. And so that kind of duality of beauty and terror. Is, is a funky interaction. Well, there's also Elijah where God was in a still, small voice. Right. right. I think I we've that. lost that. I but I think that. we've lost that in modern society. Or they, they'll say, I found it in that tranquility. But not, again, not usually when it's foggy and quiet or when it's just the ugly breakup season we I have here. I don't feel here. God at all in April. Who does, right? <laughs> right When when it's nothing out there but thawing moose poop. Uh, it's the worst. But it's that worst. is, thawing moose poop is literally nature. <laughs> it would happen whether yeah, we were here or not. Yeah, gross nature. Right, right. So does that mean God's not here because it's gross? Uh, and yes. if so, I'm what does that yes. say about the people we know that are kind of gross? Oh, what I does it say about is. ugly humans? What does it say about humans that have been living on the street for a couple months and so they're dirty and they smell bad? Okay. Is God not present in them? They're ugly, just like the creatures in nature, just like breakup. We look at them and go, ew. I feel like the entirety of Jesus's ministry was telling us, don't be like that. Don't don't judge those people for how they look or sound. Go hug the leper. And so I think a lot of our Christian theology is based on saying God is present in the things that we might initially turn away. Sure. That, I think, is a great message right there. Yeah, and I think a parallel one is when we say, I find God in nature. Well, what does that say to the people living in the city? Someone who lives in the inner city. You remember there was that thing called Fresh Air Fund for a long time, which was designed to get kids who grew up in the inner city and give them nature experiences. Yeah, It's all well and good. A lot of good intentions behind it, but it also does kind of create this duality of saying, hey, where you live is bad. We're going to give you something good over here, far, far away from your family and your upbringing. We're going to take you out of it and give you what we think is better. Um, And I, I don't think that's the intent, but in some ways it's the accidental secondary message. And when we say, I see God in nature, does that tune people's eyes and ears to say, I'm not going to see God when I'm riding the subway. But God's there too. I hear what you're saying. I don't think I've converted yet. <laughs> I, I don't try to convert people. But, I, but like, I, I recognize that um, certainly there are moments where we, where we stop and appreciate God. And there's moments where maybe we should mm-hmm. and we don't. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I, people, I wonder like, what what capacity people have to, to do to, to do that, right? Like, you know, ideally when people come to our services, we're telling them this is the moment 
to really appreciate your connection to God. Yeah. You know, your connection to community, which to me is connection to God. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or and your, your connection to prayer and what that's like. Uh, but we're not asking them to come to our places of worship every day, all day, right? People don't yeah. have that capacity. Right. So I love how you phrase that to say we ask them to come here and appreciate your connection to God. Not We don't create it. Right. We and we don't say we've got more of it here inside this room, but rather come here because we've set up um, a certain atmosphere through architecture and decor and music and ritual. We've set up a certain series of external stimuli that help you recognize that which has always been there. But couldn't that be considered sacred? If you want to use that as a definition of sacred, then yes, I do believe in the sacred. But if you use the <laughs> if you use the definition that it is worthy of reverence, yeah. then no, I don't because it's not. It's stage management. It's intentionally setting the stage so that people can recognize their their own already existing connection to God. I, I mean, I think it's both. I mean, I certainly I certainly think it's stage management is as a role yeah. that you and I play. And one of the reasons I, I think one of the things that indicates it's not sacred is because it's so different for different people. I could wear a robe on Sunday and to a hundred people, you know, the robe with the stole. Uh, I was picturing a bathroom. No, no, no. The, the, the vestments, <laughs> the official clergy garb. I could yes, wear that on Sunday. And for 100 people, they would say, that put me right in the mindset because I knew that you were speaking with authority and yeah, it really yeah. helped me to to tune in to God's presence in the room different hundred people, they would say, that really took me out of the moment. All I could think of, this guy bolstering himself up and standing above us on the stage when we're all sure, equals. Sure. The exact same stage management draws some people closer and pushes others farther away. But that's but that's that's the job, right? Our right. job is to convince yeah. the people who are the right fit yeah. for our community. And in my opinion, that lack of being eternal is one reason why it's not sacred. It's a useful tool to accomplish some of the job for some of the people. Yeah. But, I mean, I, everyone experience well, not everyone, but I would argue that lots of people experience sacredness differently, right? And so this is where I get into the, the U-turn, in which the I, I, I turn to the, the sacred text of The Incredibles. This, the movie The Incredibles? Yes, Incredibles, yeah. Incredibles, Incredibles 2? Uh, number one. Number two wasn't so good. Uh, yeah. yeah, number one, where Syndrome, yeah. the bad guy, his yeah. whole plan is to give everyone superpowers through sure. his technology. And he goes, and then when everyone is super, no one will be. No one's special. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. All and about so, specialness. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it was yeah. a special, not super. Yeah, it was yeah. special, yeah. So he's saying everyone's special, therefore no one is. You might say if everything, if nothing is sacred, Everything is. Whoa. And that's where I land Whoa. on it, that everything is nothing sacred. Well, no, nothing isn't sacred. Everything is sacred because God is here between us and inside of you and in Scranton, Pennsylvania and in the sewer and in the subway and on the mountaintop. It's all sacred. But I really know it's God when God's on the mountaintop. Right, you notice them, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole book of Exodus kind of about God being on a mountaintop. Just yeah, FYI. it's like if that were a Where's Waldo page, but it's Where's God. It's like right in the center <laughs> like with easy, a highlighter pan over them. Yeah. Okay. But there are other places it's harder. It's all obscured and you can't see it. Yeah, It's yeah. the beginning Waldo page. <laughs> okay, well, I think we really really knocked that one out yeah. of the park. What are, uh, what's next? The last thing we had written down was, oh, man, I don't even know if I have the courage to talk about parental rights oh, right. in school. <laughs> it's just the latest thing in Alaska that's and difficult. And book banning. Yeah. 
Like, when does the parent have the right to say, I'm going to pull my kid out of this subject matter? Uh, when does the parent have the right to say, I don't like that book, but it also should not be made available to others well, in that, the library? But, and, and both yeah. of those things, I feel like there are times for it, right? I don't right. think it's a black and white thing. I do no. think there are times where a parent has the right to say, I don't feel it's appropriate for my kid to learn this, or at least not at this age, right? Age-appropriate education, yeah, that's a whole... It's a thing. whole area of study. What's the right thing for the right age? And yeah. sometimes a parent might say, not for mine yet. But boy, has it gotten rough here in Anchorage, well, <laughs> Alaska. You're totally right. Like a parent. I, as always. As always. <laughs> Dad joke laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Anyways, but like a parent, a parent should, should know like their child, right? And should right. understand like what educational values are, are a good fit for their child. Yes. Right? Uh... Does it mean a parent knows how every child works? No. Right, right, yeah, yeah. and uh, just their own. Mm-hmm. But furthermore, these uh, legislations that are called parental rights happen to also do a yes. lot of, I would say, discrimination against LGBTQ rights. Right. You know? and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so the wording on it is very shrewd and yeah. purposeful. And I don't, I, and I think undermines parents. To be perfectly frank, you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. it's not really about the parents. It seems like it's about how wh- yeah. whose rights can get curtailed through uh, uh, through passing these these kinds of bills. Agreed. Yeah, I mean the whole the same yeah, with like, the, don't say gay bill in right. Florida. Same idea. Yep. Um, and that has been part of the argument about the recent one in Alaska is that it was put forth as. The the people who put it forth to, uh, titled it parental rights. People who oppose it title it don't say gay. And what you title it might uh, influence how others receive it. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It does it does harm. It does harm in particular to LGBTQ families. Um, it's it's the current bill, which seems to be not getting a ton of traction. Last well, I saw, it's, it's but just, they just updated it, didn't they? Right. So it just got. Out of, it actually made it through committee. Okay. Uh, in the House, and it, with that, but it got changed drastically. Right. And so, and essentially, the way that it changed it, which is, I, draconianly, is that every, parents get to get to like sign off on every class at every lesson. I don't know every, if it's get to. They have to. They have to. Right. Yeah, so yeah. every single time yeah. there's a lesson, parents. What do they vote on it, or it's just individually they no, say yes or no, no? There's no conception of how how it'll work. It's, Permission slips every day, yeah. essentially, is what's going to. What it's mean. a um, it's but, a can uh, of worms. But it, it, from what I understand, it, it won't get past the Senate. Okay. The Senate, the, 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 our our state Senate will will essentially it'll be dead on arrival. So uh, I'm happy to hear that. I think there are elements. That's of the it theory that, that could yeah, be useful. Yeah. yeah. Happened before we before we. True. You yeah. know what I mean? But that's that's the theory is that it won't it won't be able to get through the Senate at all. Okay. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it's really unfortunate that there is, I would say not even all conservative, but a conservative group of people that for them, it feels like it's really important to, to curtail and to, and to really just, I would say almost destroy the lives of the LGBTQ community, specifically the trans community. And they put together these kinds of bills that sound, or they're designed to sound like for helping the parent, but it's. It's just the reality. It's just it's curtailing the rights of Americans, yeah. other Americans. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's and it's a rough one to figure out those nuances of because I could see you know sex ed being where a lot of this kind of reaches a, a focal point for a lot of people. Certainly, certainly, um, and, and it always has. You know, yeah. sex ed has, has, has always been a, a touchy subject. 
Uh-huh. Uh, ha ha, I know. Sorry, pun, pun totally unattended. But, uh, but and, and maybe it should be, right? Like, you know, maybe we should be thinking about it. Yeah. Constantly thinking about who, what, what, what's, how's it good and, and, you know, and what's, what's the harm it, it can do. Yeah. Uh, but we should also understand that, like, parents should have the rights over their own children. Yeah. They can control what their own children learn, but not other people's children. Yeah, and there are certain, but there are also certain things that the reason we have a public school system is because we do believe there are certain things that are important to be known for society to function properly. Yeah. And yeah. so when I think about things like, um, if I remember correctly, that Breeze Law is instructive so that we can do things to reduce the number of um, assaults right. in young dating relationships, yeah. right? I believe that's beneficial for everyone to learn about regardless of what the parents want. And I've, I I know that's controversial to say, sure. but that's like saying, you know, there are Holocaust deniers out there. Should they have the right to tell their kids you don't go to class on the day they're talking about the Holocaust? Like, is it okay to to intentionally give these blind spots to things that are actually enormously impactful on society? That that then is antithetical to the entire purpose of public education. I, I don't know. Like, I'm, in, in a weird way, I, I disagree. Like you know, I think a, a, up to a point, a parent should have the right to 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 essentially say what their specific children yeah. should learn or not learn. Yeah. You know, and uh, that being said, though, you know, I, I feel like a, a parent when they say I, I choose for my child to go into public education, they should be fully aware of what that means, right? That it yeah, does mean yeah. Holocaust education, it does mean sex education, and they're upset by that. That maybe public education is not a good fit for their child, right? Right, and maybe they should move on and find somewhere else for their, their child to go. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, so like, certainly, like, I don't think a, ch- a parent should like go to a, a school and just kind of like pick and choose what yeah, they want from that a, school. That's a great but I, yeah. but I do believe a parent should have the right to control the education that their that their children have. Well, that's the crazy part because they already do. You could homeschool if you wanted. Anybody yeah. could. Or choose a private school that is more in alignment with what you want rather than saying public schools should quit teaching that slavery existed, which is where a lot of those things are, are headed, yeah. you know? And it's like, well, well, no, that's pretty important. You know, not only is it important simply because it happened, but also because of the way it continues to impact our world today. And to, to not educate kids on that is, is like giving someone a, driver, uh, a driver's license without ever testing them. Yeah, yeah. But there's a guy named, uh, I believe his name is John Dewey, uh, and not to be confused with the Dewey Decimal System, it's a whole different thing. Ah, oh, don't I know, it. I know. Uh, and, and, and he, but he's an education guy, and he believed that uh, essentially public schools are supposed to help create good citizens, and right? That like at the end, in part, I would say. But I'm sorry, go no, on. but that's, that's what he says, yes. right? Like he says that the goal of a public school should be when they're when when a student is done with this, when they graduate from the school, you know, after their senior year. They can be really good citizens, meaning yeah. they, they know how to vote. They and they know the issues. They know what they want from their government. Right. All those things. And I don't think we do that very well. No, not uh, at all. You yeah. know, I, I think people think of public schools as a place where people learn how to read and how you know and, mm. and, and about and about math and you know about, about those kind of subjects. But I don't think we think of schools as a place where a kid becomes an American citizen. Right. And I think I would like it if we did think of it that way. Exclusively? Yes. Exclusively, but I like mean that would be the purpose of all the, the education, right? And but you know, understanding that a citizen needs needs to know how to read, you know, needs to have read some good literature, mm-hmm. needs needs to know how to do math, 
you know, needs to understand complicated concepts, but also knows how to navigate bureaucracies. Mm-hmm. You know, knows how knows how to vote, knows what their values are. You know what I mean? Like, I feel yeah. like th- those are all good things. Yeah. Well, I guess that's kind of a broad term then to say, because when I hear good citizen, that that might bring up different connotations in terms of only very narrowly practical things. That's not, that's, that's, not, not how he, that's not what that's not what he meant either. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He meant in more of a broad way, mm-hmm. but, but he also meant that like we, we bake in this understanding that why democracy is, is necessary. Right. Yeah. You know, we, we, we bake in this idea of like, of like why policies, public policies matter. Yeah. You yeah. know, you know, that, that every person comes out of that school, school realizing, you know, what our lawmakers do is vastly important and, and controls, you know, our lives from years to come. You know, like those, that kind of stuff, I would love it if, like, we had a more f- a focus in schools about that. But, then, you know, hmm. I recognize that that's not necessarily going to happen, and, and I, I chose where my kid's going to go to school, and, I, yeah. and I'm, I'm happy with my choice. Uh, but I have this dream for public schools doing, doing that, helping students become good citizens. Well, there's the old trope of saying I've spent all these hours in math class and I still don't know how to do my taxes. <laughs> and that absolutely is true of me. I would love to. And right now, right now, one of my kids is going through algebra and learning these functions of, you know, stretching or compressing uh, an arc or a parabola on the graph. And it's like, there's no way on God's green earth she is ever going to use that information why is she putting all this time and math into that instead of things that are actually practical to her life? I'm not saying don't do math. I'm saying let her do math that's going to actually matter to her. In the I future. don't know. Maybe all math is sacred. Ah, <laughs> no. Even the math that seems like involving plotting lines? No. I reject you. <laughs> I rebuke you. <laughs> all right. Well, we're running low on time here, Matt. Okay. Uh, but, uh, hey, listeners, if you've gotten this far, well, thank you. You listen to the whole podcast. Well done. <laughs> uh, and we hope you're doing well. And uh, you can. Uh, we want to also thank uh, our logo maker, James Brown, and our um, our music guys, the Mitra Bros. Uh, and uh, we will uh, we'll see you next time, Matt. You have anything else? Any, any closing wisdom you want to offer? I have no wisdom whatsoever. Classic. It's a classic Matt move right there. But thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye.